Hello, welcome back to another episode of this podcast for learners of English. This episode is sponsored by italki. If you're looking for one-to-one lessons or a teacher or English speakers who uh, you can talk to on a regular basis or language partners and other people you can share the experience of learning English with, then you might want to check out italki because they offer you uh, a flexible approach, a very convenient approach to getting speaking time Uh, and English lessons into your like daily or weekly routine. It's all done through Skype, and it's it's very convenient. Italki have many many teachers from many different places who are there waiting to provide you with their English training, and also just uh, English speakers from the UK and all over the world who also uh, you can talk to on a regular basis as well, and um, you can make friends and have good experiences. I got a message from someone who said that they'd fallen in love. Uh, with someone they met on italki. I can't remember who that was now. Uh, but it, I definitely got a message from someone saying that they'd actually fallen in love some, with someone they met on italki. So, you know, it's a genuine thing. It's a real thing. People are actually out there connecting uh, and improving their English and also even finding love in some cases. And don't forget, uh, with this sponsorship, you can get... Um, basically a voucher worth a, a, a lesson. It's like basically a free lesson. When you buy some lessons with italki, they'll send you a voucher worth a free lesson. Um, to get that offer, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash talk or click an italki logo on my website. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing out there in podcast land? I uh, hope you're well. Here's part two of what has become a double episode. Um, going through the David Crystal interview that I did in episodes 454 and 455. Those episodes were full of so much interesting content from David Crystal that I thought it would be a good idea to go through that stuff again and, I mean, essentially repeat what he said, but also try and break it down and try to deal with the question of um, how does this relate to learning English as a foreign language? Um, you should, if you haven't listened to the others, you should probably listen to episode 454 first and then 455 and then uh, listen to the catch-up episodes after that. Okay, um, right then. So... In the last one, I was asking David Crystal uh, questions that I had, that I prepared, sort of based on his recent work and things like that. And then in episode 455, um, David Crystal answered questions from the podcast audience, from the Lepsters out there in podcast land. And so that's uh, what we'll be looking at uh, in this episode. We'll be looking at uh, uh, the answers that David Crystal gave and the various different points of interest that uh, can be significant if you are trying to learn a language, especially English, because that's what we'll be focusing on here. Okay, so then uh, the first question um, uh, in uh, in the list was from Hamid, and he asked, if English keeps taking on words from other languages, will it stop being English? And so David said that this is basically the story of English. English is a vacuum cleaner of a language. It sucks up other words. And this is one of the reasons why English is such a big um, uh, language with so many different words, because it's it sort of incorporates new words into English all the time. Um, something like 300 to 600 languages have influenced English with words. And if you look at English today, you ask yourself, where are the Germanic words? Because you kind of think it's a Germanic language. But actually, they only uh, make up about 20% of all the words. And the other 80% is from French, Spanish, Latin, and others. Um, so there's no single dominating influence on English today. In fact, what it does is it's just sort of like you could say, steals words from other languages and sort of turns them into English. Now, um, that includes um, um, Urdu words. Uh, how many Urdu words have come into English? Maybe a hundred, but English has over a million words. So there's no new cluster of uh, words coming in. It's going to come in all at once, like a tidal wave. They tend to come in drip by drip. So the point is that although English does take on other words from other languages, 
they usually come in sort of bit by bit rather than as one single sort of tidal wave. And as a result, the influence is, well, it's not negative. If anything, it's positive because often the, 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 these words are assimilated in order to reflect a need, for example, to, dis- to describe a different type of food or something. So really, there's no threat to English from this process. In fact, it's evidence of the power of English that it absorbs so many other influences from other languages and cultures. Um, and then sort of, it seems to make it stronger. It's like the blob or something. Um, next was a question from uh, Jill Marney, who asked, basically, what's the future of English? And uh, as David Crystal said, it's basically unpredictable. That's basically an un- unanswerable question. Uh, and apparently you should never try to predict the future of a language because you just don't know. I mean, you can never predict the future. It seems that, you know, big events often will change the fortunes of a language. Uh, those big events could be things like macroeconomic factors that are impossible to predict or just events like the election of Donald Trump or the referendum decision or some other election decision or, or you know, terrorist attack or whatever it is. Like events can just change the nature of history and the language kind of follows it. So it's really hard to predict. That's what David Crystal said. Um, one question actually from someone, I can't remember who, I can never remember who anymore, but one question was basically, will Brexit reduce the influence of English in the European Union? Um, David Crystal actually answered that question himself, but it was one of the questions in the list. Um, And I think that was from Paul. I think there was a listener called Paul, actually, who sent that one in. So um, as David Crystal said, uh, he thinks that, that, that Brexit won't really reduce the influence of English in the world or in the European Union much. Uh, but it will change uh, the character of English that you will hear uh, in Brussels, for example, because it won't uh, be used by so many native English speakers. Without the Brits there, uh, there'll be fewer native English speakers actually using English in those uh, areas. So there will probably be more developments into Euro-English Um which is a sort of form of English that's used in the administrative sort of uh, walls and corridors, uh, within the walls and corridors of uh, of the European Union, sort of administrative head offices and stuff like that, a kind of Euro-English, which I think does exist a bit. There is a sort of form of, um, you know, sort of sp- a specific kind of English, which is this international form, which is very influenced by various bits of like French and Spanish and German, for example. So there is a sort of Euro, Euro-English, which probably will become, uh, it, it will emerge more and more probably without the influence of the native speakers. But English as a global language will continue to change and diversify, diversify uh, according to David Crystal. Uh, Jairo asked about the uh, man- managing the workload of studies. So Jairo is a student who's uh, doing a, a a philology degree um and he was wondering how you can manage the burden of all all the books that you have to read and all the studies you have to do well david crystal agreed that learning about language is a huge burden there's so much to take on um you know learning about a language you have to learn the history society and the events of the time uh, to understand why people were using language in those particular ways you've got to understand sort of their motivations for saying the things that they said not just the things that they said it's going back to that thing again again of looking for a looking for the pragmatic answers as to why uh, particular bits of language were being used um not just the form and structure of those languages but the you know the reasons why and that informs your understanding of why those particular forms were used um so for example david asked what was it like to be an old norse speaker uh, understanding what it was like would probably help you understand the language a bit more but most philologists don't have a psycholinguistic background to their studies um psycholinguistics that's the study of the relationships between linguistic behaviour and psychological processes, including the process of language acquisition. So apparently, um, uh, most philologists uh, don't have a psycholinguistic background to their studies, so they don't take those things into account. And as a result, philology can be a bit dry. Uh, but um, 
I guess, David Crystal's advice to Jairo, if you're studying about language, that you should try and study a little bit of the history as well, which helps you to understand the motivations. Um, So David prefers the socially aware approach to the history of language, which doesn't just ask what happened and when, but asks why it happened. So let's explore the nature of the people who made it happen. And this should ease the process of studying the language. Um, Kat commented, Um, with her question saying basically English syntax can you explain English syntax and can you compare it to the syntax of other languages like German and David Crystal was like come on Kat you're asking for a book here Uh, such a huge question but um, actually according to him um, it's not such a big deal Uh, English first of all has a fairly simple morphology uh, compared with German or French so we start talking okay we start really we're talking here about the difference between the nature of English And we've chosen syntax, like sentence structure. But we could focus on other areas, like, for example, the morphology, the way that the words are formed, um, like the way we form past tenses with ed endings, you know, uh, suffixes and prefixes and things like that, uh, the, the way that words are formed. So we could look at that. We could look at the phonology of it as well, like the way that it sounds and the way that those sounds are made. Here, uh, Kat has decided to focus on the syntax of English and why is it that it's different to the syntax of other languages. Um, and David actually, first of all, started by talking about uh, the morphology, the words. And in fact, uh, compared to German or French or many other languages, English has a fairly simple morphology. I mean, what this means is that how many different forms of a single word are there? If you take the word go, um, it's basically go, goes, went, gone, maybe been as a past participle, uh, going. Um, is that it? That might be it. Go, went, gone, been, goes, going. That's kind of it. It's only about six. And then, of course, you've got the different tenses and things like that. But in terms of just the word on its own, it's only about six forms of it, which is not that complicated. Whereas in other languages, you've got all the different types of gender. You've got like a uh, many, many, many different forms for different time expressions and things like that. Uh, so the morphology of English is is pretty simple, really. Um, you know, how many possible word endings are there for a verb in English? Not that many. But... Uh, uh, but the so the difference between English and German is morphological, but on a on to a large extent. But also it's uh, syntactic as well. It, you know, meaning the way that we structure our sentences, uh, subject, verb, ob- object, and so on. Uh, in fact, English and German are relatively close because the as two languages, they only diverged from each other about 2,000 years ago. But it's true that the word order between English and German is a bit different. Um, But, you know, David told a story about how he went to German and he spoke to people with his broken German. And he says that everyone understood him when he went to Germany and he spoke German with the wrong word order, with the wrong syntax. Um, And, you know, despite the lacking the, the correct syntax, people still understood him. And there aren't that many differences, although... There aren't that many differences in syntax between English and German, although the few differences that there are are very noticeable because of, you know, the the, the, the way that they're so different. Um, so his question is actually, he asks a question back to Kat, which is, why are you worried about local areas of syntactic difference between English and German? Why has this become an issue? And this again comes back to that uh, uh, question of identity. Um, and speaking with a slight... German syntax might make you sound a bit German, but it's not the greatest, it's not the biggest uh, concern really when, you know, being intelligible is probably the bigger issue and maybe learning about the morphology um, in English, you know, may may be the bigger point as well. Uh, So it comes down to identity. Uh, German English uh, used by people who've learnt it really well still is distinctively German English. So the point is, from David to Kat, is don't be too concerned about micro differences in syntax between your language and English. As long as we understand you, that's the main thing. Now, that doesn't mean that you can just go ahead and sort of uh, make any er error that you want, because you'll find that most of the time, uh, you're 
you have to be accurate in English because it's through the accuracy that you manage to explain exactly what you mean. You know, using the right tense, positions all the events in relation to each other in the correct way, which allows us to understand the narrative drive of, the, of a story, okay? So, you know, it doesn't mean that you can just make any mistake you want. Uh, but the main thing is that uh, as long as we understand you, that's the main thing. And obviously style is important so i imagine that you want to write in the style of a native speaker uh, although which which native speaker i wonder about that uh, but you might have to accept that it's important to find your own voice in english which, which might be influenced a bit by who you are i mean it is your own voice after all which in this case is someone who lives in germany now that's not to say that your english can be totally different and be completely like german but with english words that would obviously be unintelligible and a bit ridiculous but micro differences aren't such a big deal so the point here is really don't sweat the small stuff because it's just small stuff um so, next question was from Wesley, and it was about psychology and languages. And he asked, do people speak different... Do people who speak different languages think differently? Um, and um, David had some interesting things to say. He said, um, it's difficult to translate words sometimes. If you're a translator listening to this, then you'll know it's difficult to translate words because there are some words which don't directly translate because there isn't an equivalent word. I'm sure that when you know you were you were learning English, probably in the earlier days, you probably spent a lot of time attempting to translate words in your head, in your language, into English. And many times you discover that there isn't really a direct translation. Apparently 10 to 15% of the words that you want to translate may be untranslatable. Um, I don't know which language that is, maybe from French. But in Chinese, for example, it's a lot more. Um, but when you do psycholinguistic experiments, we discover that people can see the different concepts. So the question was like, if if two languages, two people, two sets of people have different like words, like let's say uh, in one culture they've got a word for a particular colour, like a, a sort of orangey red kind of colour, they've got a specific word for it, and in another language they don't have a word for that colour, can they actually see the colour? Does the language, like does the our linguistic sort of option to be able to name that particular colour, does it somehow enhance our ability to perceive the difference as well? Is somehow the language driving the experience or is it the other way around? Is, is it that um, we notice that colour more because it maybe performs a significant role in our lives? Like, let's say you use it as a dye in the culture that you live in or it's the colour of the, the rock or the stone that's used to build the buildings. And because of that specific... Uh, requirement to name that colour. You've come up with the name that other cultures don't, you know, come up with. But everyone can still see the colour. We can all see the difference. We we would all be able to identify it in a list of colours. It's just that we might not have a word for it. So, um, so what was I saying? That uh, David Crystal was saying that when we do psycholinguistic experiments, we discover that people can see the different concepts, but having those specific words makes it easier to talk about those things. Uh, you might see the colours, but you might not might not have the language for describing it because you haven't, um, you know, grown up in a cult in a context in which that, let's say, colour is particularly important. Um, so different languages might not have the same word for something, but it doesn't mean that they think about them any differently either. Um, yeah, so uh, in English, we, we don't have a word, and I've talked about this before, we don't have a word for a certain thing in Japanese, uh, natsukashi, natsukashi, which is like this feeling of nostalgia. If you go back to a place that you haven't visited for 10 years and it suddenly feels familiar, you'd say, ah, oh, natsukashi, which is like, oh, it feels nostalgic or, or it takes me back, you see? Now, we don't have that word in English. We don't have a specific word for that, but we totally understand the feeling. Uh, I, you know, I've always had that feeling and we just have other ways of describing it. For example, oh, it takes me back or it's oh, good old, you know, like good old London or it feels nostalgic or it's good to be back. So it doesn't seem to be the case that languages affect or reflect different perceptions of the world. Um, you know, but I mean, my thoughts here, Wesley, I think there might be something to it 
For example, if you look at sense of humour or patterns of understatement, things like that, they all contribute towards expressing a sardonic outlook on life rather than a direct attitude in the Mediterranean, for example. Uh, so, But maybe that's not linguistic, that's more cultural, that in English, for example, we have a certain sardonic sense of humour. Again, uh, fair enough. I guess it comes from the culture. It doesn't. It's not dictated by the language. Um, David Crystal goes on to talk about translating uh, words or try, you know, uh, assuming that all individual words have direct translation in other languages, the fallacy is that it's words that tra- it's it's um, yeah. The fallacy is that it's words that translate. Uh, okay, that's a fallacy. It's not true that words translate. It's it's in fact sentences which translate. So a group of words together are in fact what hold meaning rather than individual words on their own. It's it's how words go together in groups or sentences. So even if there is no single word equivalent for something in another language, you could just put some words together and make a sentence, and that's how the language trans, uh, transcribes, basically. And that's how it translates. So, you know, uh, the, the fact that there isn't a word for something, let's say in English, is not evidence that English speakers can't see that thing. It's just that they find other ways, like uh, on a sentence level, to express it. Um, you know, the, the, we had the example of snow that you use to build an igloo with. Uh, snow that you use to build an igloo with. So the, the um, um, who are the people? Eskimos, the people who live in um, igloos. Uh, they might have a single word for that kind of snow. But in English, we'd still be able to deal with it by saying snow that you use to build an igloo with. It's a bit longer, but we can still see it. We can still name it. So there, there it is. Um, so I guess what this means for learners of English is that you have to learn not only the vocabulary of a new language, it's not just about translating. Uh, okay, there's three things that you can learn from this one. One is that you should avoid translating individual words directly from your language into uh, English or the other way around. So I've seen people's notebooks, vocabulary notebooks, and it's a list of English words, individual words, with a list of individual translation words on the other side. And what people do is they they go through the list and they just remember the translation. That's not necessarily the way to do it. So that's number one. Um, Second thing is that you need to look at words in groups because that's where they really get their power, where they combine with other words. So you should be looking for collocations of new words, uh, the words that commonly go with them. And also you should look at sentences and even things like the typical contexts in which uh, that kind of language would be used. So sentences, concepts, typical uh, cultural references that are made uh, with those particular words. And you can do that by doing things like a Google search. If you found a new word, you can stick that individual word or a phrase in speech marks into Google, click search, and then click the news tab on Google, and you'll see news stories that contain the word or phrase. And that's a good way of getting a sense of kind of how people are using that language. Bear in mind, sometimes it'll come from blog articles or newspaper articles, and so you should think about the style being used. But often you will see quotations and things with those phrases being used, and it's just a good way of uh, of seeing the phrases being used in a sentence, but also in a cultural context as well. Um, and so the third thing is that you should not only learn the vocab, you need to learn the culture as well, okay? Um, you know, uh, it, to learn a language properly, you need to learn all about the culture, the mindset, the reference points that are being made. And you you know, you know, can see all of those things too, but having certain words and expressions uh, makes it easier to talk about them. So you know, it's a question of understanding the things that are important and then the language that goes along with it. Um, yeah, the result is that in languages, it's easier to talk about commonly occurring cultural phenomena because the language has the tools to do it. But people are all still basically the same. We might just take a little bit longer to talk about a concept that in your language is very normal. Whew. All right, then. Uh, next question was from Mayumi, and she asked, why do British people use indirect language? We've said many times before that the English are famous for saying sorry and for not being able to give a negative response. We kind of have this ambiguous indirect kind of language. Why? Um, and um, it's it's difficult to, from a language point of view, to be able to answer that question. You have to end up looking at a sort of psychological, social uh, point of view. But um, a linguist might not have the answer to why it is that British people behave in this 
so-called polite way. It's just a cultural difference. Maybe it's the British temperament. Uh, the reason for that is hard to say. Maybe it's because the UK is an island, like uh, Mayumi suggested, and that the psychogeographic factors might affect the kind of language use and the way that we communicate with each other. Uh, pragmatics comes back into it again here. That's the study of why people are using specific bits of language. Um, and, you know, really, we see that language norms or the way that language is used reflect the cultural context. And that's, as David uh, Crystal said, that's the identity argument. Um, there may be an argument that language norms reflect the cultural context here, meaning the cultural context being that British people are a bit indirect, uh, which I think is what Wesley was getting at. You know, the idea that um, language norms reflect the cultural context. Actually, I'm not sure that's what Wesley were getting at. I'm going to just rewrite that. Um, I don't think Wesley was getting it. I think Wesley was suggesting that because we have different language, we see the world in a different way, and that's defined by our language. But in fact, it's the other way around. Anyway, um, uh, maybe you know. The question is: Is English too prone to humour to be able to sustain fascism? Oh, this is a complicated one. I'm going to have to come back to that later on. But anyway, the point is, why does the UK use this kind of polite language? And the answer is, we don't really know. You'd have to ask why British people want to be polite. But obviously, it's because we're such nice people, isn't it? That has to be the answer. We're just lovely people, and we just like to be nice. I don't know. Um, so basically, uh, Mayumi, you just have to accept the cultural differences. You have to try and learn about them and accept them. Because basically, that's just who we are should be a good enough answer. And that's probably the best answer we can give. Like, why do British people communicate in this way? Just because we're English, because we're British. So as ever, you must just um, accept cultural differences. Just like when you discover them in language and you discover them in, in, in social situations, you just have to accept the cultural differences and remember, they're not weird, they're just different. Uh, I don't think Mayumi thinks that the indirect communication style is weird because I think that's kind of normal in Japan too. But sometimes there isn't really an answer, you just have to accept it. Um, it's a good bit of advice for anyone coming into contact with another, with another culture. It's, it's a good bit of advice to remember, it's not weird, it's just different. Um, now, you can speculate about why people behave the way they do, but ultimately, you've just got to accept it and move on, like the way you ha often have to accept that in English, this is just what people say in this language, and that's it. Um, okay, so in my notes here, I've got reference to two words, the synchronic and diachronic methods. And David Crystal talked about using a synchronic method and not a diachronic method. So we're getting into some terminology here. And according to Wikipedia, synchrony and diachrony are two different and complementary viewpoints in linguistic analysis. A synchronic approach considers a language at a moment in time without taking its history into, into account. Synchronic linguists aim... Um, aim Two or synchronic linguistics aims at describing a language at a specific point of time, usually the present. By contrast, a diachronic approach considers the development and evolution of a language through history. Um, so David Crystal says that we should use a synchronic approach to understand these things. So basically, why is this particular person choosing to say it in this way right now? Um, so, so there you go. I mean, you know, and, and the answer for why British people are polite is that we don't really know, unfortunately. Uh, you could, it's probably a similar reason for why Japanese people are. Um, some more modern dictionaries now contain extra information to help you with all this stuff. Like they help you by giving you often collocations or maybe a little bit of background information, uh, little essays about usage and pragmatics, which help us to identify how culture affects language. So it's worth reading the extra comments and information pages that you find in many dictionaries. They're full of really useful background information. You should also consider reading cultural guides about different countries or English-speaking countries, as well as just purely linguistic ones, that if you're going to communicate with people from a particular country, you should probably read up on that culture and sort of prepare yourself and, you know, see how it affects the communication style and then the English as well. 
Um, Antonio asked whether artificial intelligence would ever replace the need for language learning. Imagining this idea where we all have computers in our heads or computer headphones and we can go around and talk to people in different languages and the technology instantly translates it and we're able to then just have meaningful conversations and relationships just like we do now but instead of having to learn the the languages you wouldn't have to spend any time you wouldn't listen to luke's english podcast there'd be no reason for this to exist it's like some sort of uh, frightening uh, brave new world where it's all robots and cyborgs and everything's really clean and there's a like slight undercurrent of evil you know and one of the robots is going to go bad and it's going to make everyone evil and then there'll be a big fight and it'll be like the matrix all because of no luke's english podcast that will be the outcome if this podcast ever ends it'll basically end with the a futuristic apocalypse with robots um so there's something to look forward to but anyway this is what i think and this is partly what antonio was thinking about a future where people will use technology to translate instantly and so they won't need to learn languages again and it made david crystal think of the the babel fish or babble fish from uh the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy this wonderful book uh by douglas adams which um um has this idea of this this babel fish which is like a little fish that if you put it in your ear it swims into your ear and it automatic it will translate every language that you hear. So if you've got a babel fish in your ear, you can understand everybody. And the babel fish in the book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, apparently is uh, is the thing that destroys um, the arguments for the existence of God. Because um, what was it? How does it go in the book that the the uh, religious people say that? Um, there's, there can be no faith with evidence. That evidence destroys faith. The whole purpose of having faith is that you—it's a leap of faith. You know uh, that um, you just have to have faith, and that if you require evidence for that faith, then it sort of destroys the whole concept of it. So evidence destroys faith. And then the Babelfish comes along, and it's so perfect and so amazing and so advanced as an organic creature that will translate any language. It's so perfect that the argument is that this is. Uh, the you know the only conclusion can be that this was created by an intelligent designer. It's the ultimate ele- uh, in- uh, it's the ultimate evidence of an intelligent designer. And because suddenly this evidence exists, it destroys the religious faith, and God disappears in a cloud of logic. Uh, that's how it goes in the book. Anyway, the Babel fish is like this little fish that you put in your ear, and uh, it translates everything. So it's that idea. And David Crystal thinks that in a hundred years, the technology probably will be perfect. And, I mean, I've certainly seen the automatic subtitles on my YouTube videos have improved recently. So probably, certainly within 100 years, automatic uh, translations will probably be perfect. Um, so imagine a situation, though, where the, the, the Babel fish in your ear is operating perfectly, and it would solve lots of problems, certainly. But the problem is here, the thing that's missing is the question of identity. Because the point is that if you're French, you might still want to be French. And the artificial intelligence might not include those differences. People will still hold on to their languages in order to express their identity. So it won't affect language diversity because people will still be using their own languages to express identity. So that's the idea of it uh, being a threat to language diversity. But my question was whether or not uh, uh, this kind of technology might... Uh, make the need for global language uh, redundant. Maybe artificial intelligence will replace English. So why bother learning an international language? Uh, And David said that there are various answers to that. Technology, for example, might let you down. There might be a situation where, for example, you don't have electricity and so you can't power the technology. So you might uh, not choose to constantly rely on it. Um, And also, uh, will artificial intelligence manage to be perfect like a human with the ability to translate with a view to expressing the culture? Because human translations choose... uh, Human translators, um, when they're translating from one language to another, choose between many different competing nuances of translation. And in fact, any, any person when they're speaking, they you know make certain choices to express certain different nuances of english so for example i could say it this way or i could say it this other way so we make those decisions based on complex social and psychological factors and a computer might not have that kind of cultural sensitivity or maybe that sort of thing would only come in the very long term 
So the number of people learning languages might be reduced, it's true, but it's also ignoring another factor in language, uh, in learning another language, and that is the, this, the desire to become aware of the culture, the history and the literature of the other language. Uh, so there are you know, many reasons for learning a language other than just being able to communicate. It's also about uh, the personal satisfaction in learning another language and enjoying the pleasant things about it. So people learn languages because they want to do it, not necessarily because they need to. It's a pleasure to learn another language. People seem to enjoy listening to Luke's English podcast. So uh, there are many reasons to want to continue to learn other languages. It's not just about intelligibility. It's also about identity. So maybe they won't completely replace, um, you know, language learning uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, and and for the foreseeable future, David can't see that it would be economically viable to create the kind of technological solution for language when the traditional methods are already the best way to foster genuine relationships between people. Now, the next question was from Jack. And um, we don't know where Jack comes from. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. Uh, we don't know where he's from. But he uh, is famous in the comments section for writing in this kind of Ali G dialect. Okay, do you remember that? Uh, the Ali G dialect. So in the Ali G dialect, people speak like this. Me want to just ask a question like that kind of thing. A bit strange, you might think. And I sort of think, why does Jack choose to uh, write like that? And I asked uh, David Crystal Jack's question in his kind of Ali G voice. And first of all, David didn't mind at all being ad- addressed in the Ali G dialect. It didn't bother him at all. Uh, certain features of that dialect, which are basically that dialect comes from sort of like, I don't know, it's, I guess originally it's from a, a sort of Afro-Caribbean community in London who spoke with a, a sort of Jamaican patois sort of influence on English. And then that spread to... Um, other people living in London who weren't part of that community. So, for example, even just sort of white working class kids who worked, who lived in the same neighbourhood might start speaking like that as well. And then you end up with a character like Ali G, who is basically a sort of a middle class, lower middle class white guy, teenager who lives in his bedroom, who fancies himself as a sort of rapper. He's a wannabe rapper. And um, so... He's adopted this kind of speech. He's a kind of fake, uh, uh, s- fake rapper or something. He's adopted this speech pattern in order to try and be cool. Okay, um, and so the features are things like saying "me" instead of "I" at the beginning of a sentence, like "me wants to know," for example, uh, or subject-verb agreement, like "I is." You know, "I is well impressed," for example, and little phrases like "booyakasha," which comes from. Um, I guess, Jamaican like dialect and certain other words like it's a well big honour, well big, uh, well being used to mean very or really, you know, it's a well big honour to have you on the podcast. So, I mean, the first thing that David talked about really was um, Jack's uh, option to speak in this dialect or at least write in this dialect in the in the comments section. And um, we see that it's quite a skill, in fact, to be able to switch between registers, uh, between registers, like different styles of English. Sometimes we break the rules in English as a stylistic choice, like, for example, with the expression, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, which is a which basically is a fixed phrase. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, meaning if it if it's not broken, don't fix it. But it's got sort of incorrect grammar. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Which is basically, you know, the sort of thing you'd say about a system. You know, like don't change the system. If it's if it works, then there's no need to fix it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Just leave it the way it is. Don't change it. Um, so you know, you can you can break the rules as a stylistic choice. Like if you want to use an expression like that, or if for whatever reason you want to talk like Ali G, maybe as some sort of joke or a reference, I don't know. But it is important to be able to switch between different styles and registers. And I have seen Jack switch between styles. Sometimes he writes like that. Sometimes he writes kind of ordinarily, which suggests to me that his English is actually pretty good. Um, So I'm not bothered by it in the comments section of my website because it, you know, because uh, it doesn't really bother me. But you, but um, you should be aware, Jack, that some other people might find it a bit weird or inappropriate. Like, for example, if you write that in forums 
on other websites or in the comments section of Amber's new podcast about Paris history or in like a business meeting that you attend, it might be a bit weird and inappropriate there. Uh, So you need to seriously think about the appropriacy of the things that you're doing and the reasons why you're doing them. And that means the style of English that you're using, although I don't mind the LEG stuff really, or also the decision to post dodgy pictures of cakes on my website, for example. Um, So, you know, they're worth thinking about. That's the point. Um, So the other question was, well, Jack's actual question was, should um, the listeners of this podcast learn the rules of grammar or should they just focus on meaning and let the rules look after themselves? And we kind of answered this question already at the beginning of part one, I think. And David's answer is that uh, you should do both but in a structured sort of way. So you should, you know, look at the grammar, but you also should uh, just look at the English being spoken and being used in an authentic context and just sort of uh, focus on the meaning and and the grammar will kind of slot into place as well, but also a bit of studying. Uh, And David talked about different different types of teaching. There was communicative teaching, which is an approach to English teaching that focused on giving students communicative tasks and letting them work out how to achieve them. And then the grammar would kind of come in afterwards. Um, uh, But then that sort of meant that the structured side, which is also quite important, got lost. Also, just listening, for example, just listening to this podcast and working things out by being dropped in at the deep end, is a bit of a big step. And it takes a, a while for that to have an impact on your English. I think the thing is for listeners to this podcast here is that you should consider listening to Luke's English podcast as a sort of a long-term thing or whatever it is you're listening to you should consider it to be a long-term thing and it needs to be a regular thing as well so long regular long let's say like that long regular long long meaning long term so you should be doing it you know not obviously you wouldn't just listen to the podcast for a couple of weeks but it's something that you would do on a long-term basis uh if you like it uh, uh, what was it? Long, what long? Oh God, I can't remember now. Long something long. I can't remember what I just said. That's annoying. Anyway, long term, the thing in the middle, um, I'll come back to if I can remember it. And the other long meant for a long time, like for example, for an hour. I think that's better that you're listening to English for a slightly longer period of time because that really allows the English to bed in a little bit. So it was long, regular, long. That was it. Long, regular, long. Long, long term. Regular meaning on a regular basis. Um, and long meaning for a longer period of time when you listen. And uh, that's important as just sort of loading lots of English into you. Uh, English that you're focusing on the meaning and just trying to understand it and enjoy it. So long, uh, long, regular, long. And also, you know, a bit of studying too. It's also important to do some structure work. Um but also to expose yourself to things that illustrate the language point being used in a functional way. So when you do, um, when you do study the language, you know, look beyond just the form towards how exactly it's being used. Remember that yin and yang thing that you're, your exposure, your listening should be punctuated by a bit of noticing of grammar and your grammar studies, uh, your study of structure and form should be also punctuated by the desire to see how exactly that language is being used in a natural context by, for example, googling the phrases that you're you're looking at. Uh, so, as as we've said before, do both. Do some structured language work combined with exposure, in which you are really focused on following the meaning of what's being communicated. Then, probably some more reflection on the way it was done with language. So, moving between grammar and pure meaning, and back to grammar and pure meaning. Moving between those two things, it's the yin and the yang. It's the Tao of English learning. Um, so, all right. So the next question was uh, back to the conversation I had with Amber and Paul recently about failing standards in English. I was talking about how Brits get really upset and really uptight when they notice someone say like, how are you? Oh, I'm good. Like, it's not good. I'm I'm fine. <laughs> uh, they get annoyed by that and um, other little examples of failing standards. Uh, now, David actually doesn't mind these things that other people perceive as being failing language standards. Because as long as the language is intelligible, then really it's just a sign of changing identities. It's a a sign of the times. Let's take how are you, I'm good as an example. Okay. Now what 
some Brits will say when they hear, how are you, I'm good, they will get annoyed and say, and, and their evidence for why it's not correct is that it sounds like you're saying, I'm good, like I'm morally good, I'm a morally good person. But really, I think it's, I think it's highly unlikely that if someone walks into the room and you say, hi, how are you? And they say, I'm good. It's highly unlikely that you're going to take that to mean, I'm morally good, I'm a morally good person. Of course you're not. The, uh, you entirely understand what they mean when they say, I'm good. You know exactly what that means. It means I'm fine. Okay, it could even mean I'm in good health, right? I'm, I'm fine. So there's really no question of it being unintelligible. But that's the example that people will give. It's like, well, I, I didn't ask about your moral condition. You know, they kind of get all weird about it like that. So it's not that it's unintelligible, but it is a question of changing identities because really, I'm good comes from American English. And so people get uptight about that. They don't like the change. They feel like it sounds sloppy. Uh, but really, it's just a different cultural um, way of doing things. Um, so unfortunately it's just a sign of the times if people don't like the changing times then they're just gonna have to roll with it because ultimately the language is still operating effectively it's just that it just looks and sounds a little bit different um are we better at communicating than we used to be which is the question that kept coming up in that conversation with amber and paul are we actually better at communicating than we used to be and really it's it's almost well, it's very difficult to measure that. It is possible to measure it, but it's not possible to give a simple answer. Uh, according to David Crystal, it depends on the situation. And in fact, he wrote a book about it uh, called The Gift of the Gab. If you've got the gift of the gab, it means you're, you've, you're, you're gifted, you're, you're talented with um, eloquence. It means you can talk and talk. Uh, we often say that Irish people have the gift of the gab because Irish people are well known for being able to talk and talk and talk a lot. Uh, so if you've got the gift of the gab, it means you're able to talk a lot and you're very eloquent. Um, so eloquent standards do vary. They change from generation to generation and circumstance to circumstance, individual to individual. For example, um, uh, Obama and Trump, uh, there are differences in eloquence between the two of them. We often consider Obama to be the more eloquent, articulate person and Trump is uh, somehow more basic in his communication and, uh, and so on. There are differences, but is Trump incoherent and is Obama actually a better communicator? Well, many people would say that Trump is incoherent and inarticulate, uh, but it's not necessarily true considering Trump's ability to communicate with his core voters. Trump seems to be able to communicate extremely well with the people who voted for him. So it's not really true that he's incoherent or inarticulate. People cite various things as examples of falling eloquent standards. For example, uh, using like. So I was like, uh, I don't know, and, and, you know, and I was like, what am I going to do now? Like. Um, but often these aren't really examples of, fa of falling or failing standards. It's just a question of style. So how do we use like? Well, basically, we use like to just fill a gap in any sentence. We, we like just use like to like fill a like gap in a like sentence. Now, obviously, you shouldn't do it too much because it starts to sound a bit ugly. But as long as it doesn't get in the way, um, it's just a question of style. And in fact, um, if we don't use like, there may be other expressions that we use which are considered to be socially acceptable. Um, other other little little words and things which you know are more accepted than like so again people see language changes and they equate it with decline and it's not really decline it's just change um, okay so you know usually people are just giving examples of things that are just a different type of eloquence so a change um, back to Trump's English David Crystal says that Trump's English has a style with its own values and he avoids the sort of typical rhetorical style of Barack Obama with his balanced and complex sentences, which is how, uh, obviously, that's how, that's like the quick version of the Obama impression. Uh, it's, yeah, it's just a load of noises. Anyway, Trump uses everyday conversational strategies you know he says like look believe me believe me folks we've got the greatest we've got all the greatest words in english you 
you're going to come to English you're go- and you're going to get, you're going to make so much money. You're going to get so rich with these words. You know, that sort of simple, everyday, conversational English. Um, he doesn't use carefully crafted sentences. He changes direction mid-sentence. And these are all features of sort of informal American speech. And semantically, it can be extremely difficult to understand what he really means. You know, if so I, 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 I'm going to get the bread. It's my job. It's not my job. Okay, it's it, it is my job. It is my, not my job. But one thing's for sure: we will be getting the greatest bread. We're going to have sandwiches. It's going to be terrific. Um, it's not entirely <laughs> clear what he's talking about, um, uh, but um, adopting that style has allowed him to appeal to certain people, which has been crucial to his success. Unless, of course, there's a unless, of course, there's something else involved in the whole Trump success. He's being investigated by the FBI at this moment for questions relating to his handling of secret information and whether or not the the Russians are backing him. What on earth is going on, uh, ladies and gentlemen, with uh, Donald Trump at the moment and these sort of allegations that? Uh, somehow he's working for Russia and that Russia was involved in the uh, the American presidential election and Brexit and all this stuff. What on earth is going on? It's extremely weird times. Anyway, uh, 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 Trump doesn't speak in the classical sort of eloquent way, but he's very effective as a communicator because he's managed to mobilize all these people. Now, uh, these days, uh, as David said, Trump may have become a little bit more formal, but during the campaign, he was noticeably less formal and more colloquial than Clinton and the other candidates. And as a result, he clearly stood out from the crowd uh, during a climate of dissatisfaction with the traditional political class. People were fed up with the type of boring politician speaking in that boring old way. And they thought that they were out of touch with ordinary people and part of a crooked system. People, a lot of people didn't trust Obama because of his laid-back, cool, complex way of speaking. Trump got in by presenting himself as an alternative to this established political system. And the way he used English was a big part of that. Um, all right, there you go. That's the end of that. I've been through most of the points made by David Crystal in our conversation. Um, and so there we go. All right. I'm going to leave it uh, at this point uh, because I've got loads of things to do. I've got tons of stuff to do. I've got to go out to the post office. I've got to uh, do some shopping. I'm a busy person today, so I don't have time to ramble on any more. But uh, there will be more rambling coming soon. By the way, I just saw from the news that Theresa May has... Um, joined uh, coalition um uh, joined in coalition government with uh, the DUP um the the Democratic Unionist Party um so we have got this is what it says on the Guardian's website election 2017 Theresa May says Tories will work with DUP to proceed with Brexit um all right, fine. There you go. That's the latest update on the election stuff. So the, the Tories are going to stay in with support from the DUP then. Okay, well, what a disaster that was for Theresa May, though, because she's just lost a bunch of influence in the House of Commons by doing that uh, snap election, which totally worked against her uh, expectations. Anyway, we'll keep up with this story. Uh, I'll probably talk to you more about it on the podcast soon at some point. But for now, it's just time to say... Goodbye. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk.